Welcome to the MBUK podcast. In this series, we'll be looking back through some of the moments that helped shape the sport of mountain biking. From the pioneers that paved the way, bikes that broke the tech boundaries, and the events that pushed the very limits of the sport, to the racers who will be forever cemented in our memories for their antics on and off the track. We'll even do our best to predict how things will look in the future. If you enjoy what we're doing, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your mates. And if you have time, please give us a review. Hello and welcome to another MBUK podcast. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Tom Marvin. How are you doing, Tom? I'm all right. Thanks, Rob. Great stuff. And we have the king of grammar, the <laughs> chief of spelling, James Costley-White, editor of MBUK with us again today. How are you doing, James? I'm all right. Thanks. Good. Now, today we are talking about gear that changed the sport. So some of the most significant bits, components, parts, maybe tyres even, that we think have changed the sport of mountain biking over the years. As ever, this is just a list that we've put together. So I'm sure some listeners <laughs> may disagree, and then that's totally fine. And if you do, email James <laughs> specifically. <laughs> he can't wait to hear uh, and tell him exactly why we're wrong. That's no problem at all. All the bits that we should have included. Okay then, James, I think we're going to wind it all the way back to 1982, I believe. Well, why is that significant? Why? why? Yeah, so we've, we've talked a bit in another episode of this podcast about the kind of the early bikes. So we're going to gloss over that here. What I think we do need to mention is a really crucial product that came out in 1982 that really steered the development of mountain biking from then on. And that was Shimano's first Dior XT group set. Which is still around now. Which is still around in, yeah, slightly tweaked form now. They did change it, yeah. They have remade it. Luckily. Yeah, they, yeah, they've made a few improvements over the last four decades or whatever it's been. But um, the basics are the same. I mean, it's, you know, a derailleur or two back then paired with a shifter, a cassette and a chain. Still hangs off the back of your bike. Still hangs off the back of your bike. I mean, there is now an electronic version as well, but fundamentally it's still recognisable as the same product, which is pretty impressive. How many speeds would it have had back then? Uh, it would have had six back then. Six on six, the back. Six sprockets on the cassette plus three rings on the crank set. Go on, Tom. How many is that? Uh, 19. <laughs> 18 speed. 18 speed. 18 individual ratios, but there may have been some crossover. Of but it, yeah, I think with a crossover, it probably would have been about the same range as a modern 12 speed. Yeah, similar range, top setup. to bottom. Yeah. Probably fair. I think so. The importance of, of XT, I mean, it was the first specific mountain bike or off-road group set but the real importance of it was it marked the change from mountain bikes being downhill racing machines mm -hmm. to being machines that could be pedaled back uphill as well which obviously led to a massive shift in the sport oh. 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 seamless Clever. seamless and unintentional but i shouldn't admit that um but yeah obviously that was that was one of the main things that propelled a big change from it being a downhill sport to a more cross-country focused scene by the end of the 80s i think the thing with xt is that it's always sort of been that kind of do it all group set you know it's xti you've got your you know when they later introduce other group sets you know xt remained as the the kind of do it all one it was the one that was fitted to high-end bikes that people really wanted but it wasn't race focused for example you know it meant it wasn't like a downhill group set it wasn't uh, an xc race by the, by latter years you know xtr would have taken that mantle and it's kind of the standard that everything's based around it's sort of it's kind of like the every person's yeah group set right it was You'd still sort of aspire to own it because it was really cool. It was yeah. XT. I mean, it wasn't quite XTR, but it was still very desirable. Mm. But it still had loads of 
in terms of performance, still a hell of a lot going still for like it. The well, it's still it a benchmark, right? right? Yeah. Yeah, I, still, I think that's still the case today, isn't it? I mean, the SLX and Dior are both very good dry trains and won't let you down. But if you had the money for XT, you'd probably go for it. Absolutely. Mm. And it's, I mean, you could say the same now with the, the XT shifters in particular. Yeah. yeah. Big fan of it, Tom. Big fan of that, yeah. Any bike that comes with that but maybe like an SLX or a Dior drivetrain. Yeah. Big mark in my books, get the shifter in. Yeah, forget the rear mech, which is the part that bike brands always like to up-spec. Yeah. Fit the nicer shifter instead. Because from a, a performance point of view, it's the best bang for buck. And XT was sort of, you know, it was the desirable one. Okay, XT was always the top-end one, so people really wanted that. But XT was the one where you got sort of the next level of trickle-down, so it still benefited from all the performance features, really, of XTR. But without sort of the cheapening or the the, yeah. the lower price, the yeah. lower value sort of slight dilution of that from you know Dior LX and now what is SLX? Well, and in fact now with the latest Dior, the Dior Di2, so the electronic version, XT Di2, uh, Dior, sorry, yeah, XT Dior Di2 um, is actually higher performance, arguably than XTR Di2 because it has all the latest functionality once it's combined with an e-bike motor. Shimano kind of shoot themselves in the foot a little bit, don't they? When they make their cheaper stuff as good as they do mm. making the other stuff yeah sure everyone wants to buy it but equally do you need to yeah if you can get that performance at a much lower price yeah okay so let's move on nine whole years yeah. another shimano related story this time this time it's all to do with pedals though yeah the spd shimano pedaling dynamics um the first real uh mountain bike based clipless pedal system and obviously Clipless is always one of those like funny terms of like, why is it clipless? It's got a clip on it. But what they mean is you don't have toe clips. So, you know, you're, you're, the front of your foot isn't encased in, in a load of straps or metal brackets, which made it terrifying to get out of. Have you two um, ever arrived with toe clips? I have oh, done. Yeah. I have. Yeah. That's where I started. I started yeah, across country on them. Same here. Yeah. Absolute nightmare. It was terrifying. But um, the, the SPD mechanism, you know, is a, a sprung pedal with a, a metal cleat on the bottom of your shoe that allowed you to release your foot with just a twist of your foot but still got all those efficiency and power sort of saving uh, benefits that a, a toe clip would have gains is the word I was looking for, <laughs> that a clip would have given you. Well, and I think also in those days, you have to remember flat pedals oh, they weren't were really a thing. You know, there mm. were bear traps and all, all kind of weird shark teeth things, oh but God. nothing with the grip you get today from a decent pair of flats and a pair yeah. of 510s or something. So it was also the security over rough ground mm. that clips had was so much better and i think this is one of the places where shimano you know occasionally you'll get like a, a new product that comes out that whole scale changes the rest of the market like i suppose you could probably argue srams udh has, has done that where a massive manufacturer said we've got this new standard and basically a couple of years later everything comes with it with spd shimano basically said this is how ours will you know our cleats will attach to the bottom of the shoe you can use that if you want for anyone else who's going to make such a system and now that sort of two bolt, you know, the spacing of it has been consistent for now 40 mm. years, pretty much. Yeah, know. and the pedal, I mean, the basic pedal mechanism looks very, very similar as yeah. well. I mean, it might have a cage around it now, but that's about it. Mm. And also, I mean, the word SPD or spud, as we called them in the 90s, it just became ubiquitous with mountain bike pedals. You know, you didn't say if you got clipless pedals, you say yeah. if you got a pair of spuds. How many times did you fall over just trying to clip in and out, do you reckon? Quite a few. God, it's painful, isn't it? Did you? I've never really had that. You've I never think... toppled over? I mean, I've toppled over, maybe, I think more so. I've never had like a proper crash caused by my foot being stuck in there. Okay. What I have had is like a couple of those moments where maybe you can't get out of my bike. 
because I'm upside down and I can't like. I don't think I, I can ever really attribute a proper bad crash to an SPD. I there was that there was mm. that one when we were riding together where you couldn't get out of a certain type of pedal. Um, <laughs> Not an SPD. It though. wasn't an SPD, but the the bike definitely tumbled over and smashed into a massive rock <laughs> like hefty yeah i yeah. do remember that yeah well, that was pretty bad. That you were quite angry about that was yeah <laughs> <laughs> but hey i mean yeah they, they so essentially what you're saying is they kind of paved the way and oh absolutely and they still, create standards almost well and yeah. they still dominate the market today i mean really you're either an spd person which might you know, includes various other brands that sure. use the same cleats mm. or you're a, a crank brothers person it's only really those two yeah those two main variations within clipless pedals Brilliant. Okay, so a lot about Shimano. Should we um, skip over to their um, arch rivals, SRAM, and talk a little bit about their one-by system? Okay, so for a long, long time, it was always the race to who could create the most effective front derailleur. But as that started to lose favour and people were looking for simplicity and reliability, a lot of people ditched the front derailleur in favor of a chain guide, but then by doing so potentially limited their gear range. And then in 2012, SRAM came out with their one by system. Yeah, I think it's probably worth saying that I think the whole ditch in the front mech thing was quite a UK and maybe North America centric yeah, thing. Would you agree? I think in yeah. mainland Europe, they still kind of clung to the idea of having more gears and more range, whereas we were more into the kind of more aggressive downhill side of things and got fed up with losing our chains all the time. Oh my God, that was the worst. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, when SRAM actually got behind it and you no longer had to, you know, in the old days you get a new bike and the first thing you do is take two chain rings off and stick a chain guide on. And then suddenly it came, you know, ready built. It was, yeah. kind, it was kind of scary though, wasn't it? The first time you ride out with no front derailleur, no um, chain guide at all, mm. purely relying on the, the shape and profile of the chain ring, the narrow wide teeth. I remember it because I was on the launch, in fact. We we rode out of the, the factory there at, at SRAM off into the trails. And when you did look down, it was just like someone's forgot to put something on your bike. It felt yeah. a little bit, you felt almost naked on there. I guess this is almost the thing about SRAM's one-by stuff was, you know, it, it wasn't just a case of, you know, you have a wide-range cassette and a single chain ring. It was that fundamentally the design of the chain ring had changed to incorporate narrow, wide mm -hmm. teeth in order to help with that chain retention. So, you, you know, you had to have even numbered teeth, usually 32 or 34, I guess. There were more limitations in terms of that, but because it was run back then, XX1 was like a 10 to 42 cassette, yeah. right? <clears throat> yeah, 11 speed, yeah. So you've probably dropped a little bit of overall range over what you had before, but what you've got in return is a lighter, simpler, more reliable in theory drivetrain. Yeah, and then coupled with the clutch in the rear, in theory, the chain should stay put, right? Yeah. It shouldn't jump around quite as much. It's a bit quieter. Um, and you don't have all those woes and headaches of a front derailleur or a chain guide. Mm, mm. I think until then, SRAM have kind of been playing catch-up with Shimano, really, hadn't they? I mean, they've started yeah. off in the whole grip shift thing back in the 90s, but had always been seen as you know, slightly aspirational alternative, I guess, to Shimano. Okay. But then overnight, they almost stole a march on them, and Shimano were just determined to cling on to, to two-by. Yeah, and it's only really the last few years that Shimano have finally caught up and gone all in with with mm. one by. But then, obviously, with that, go into a, a one by system, which pretty much all mountain bikes now adopt. There's a load of design benefits for the frame engineers, isn't there? Yeah, shorter back ends, more mudroom, 
less you know more freedom over where you put pivots less requirement to have a, a seat tube or a a location to put your front mech wider pivot placement wider pivot placement yeah. were these things that they discussed on the launch or was that, is that a side benefit that they hadn't really twigged onto um i think it was i think uh i'm trying to remember back i think they may have discussed some of that stuff mm -hmm. but i remember talking in particular to the guys at white mm -hmm. who were early adopters of it what did they what they had an acronym for it uh single chain ring design scr oh, yeah i feel like it was scr yeah. scr maybe yeah, yeah that's it yeah so they they fully embraced it and they fully embraced all the benefits that came mm -hmm. with it you know i guess once all the other brands kind of got on board and then shimano kind of brought out their equivalent we we haven't really looked back at it no think. i can't imagine now getting a mountain bike in for test with a front trailer on no i rode i rode a bike the other day which had a yeah i went for a gravel ride yesterday with a colleague of ours mm. and my gravel bike i've only ever had single chain ring gravel bikes mm. so they've always come with sram drivetrains which again they've sort of co-opted that into the gravel range and i rode one yesterday with with a two by system i was like what? What? ah oh god <laughs> so noisy <laughs> I was like, literally like it literally has been a decade since i ran two chain rings on a bike and then obviously sram always going to be you know like any brand will continue to work on that mm. stuff and then went forward and did one by 12, so even more gears, wider range. They've made that work. And then since have gone on to do um, their wireless transmission, which is now incorporated as part of their powertrain e-bike motor and system. Transmission and all sorts, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's the sort of, you can sort of clearly see how they, they mark that path out. And um, it's been really cool to see the progress. Mm. Shall we go back once again to 1993, and this is, I suppose, quite a British invention we're going to talk about. The DCD. I mean, we're still sti sticking with like, drivetrains as such. Yeah, and it almost ties in a bit with one bike in this it does, kind of absolutely. way. Yeah, we're yeah. talking chain retention. We're, yeah. we're talking sort of little British niche things that... Yeah. What does DCD stand for, James? Dave's chain device. That's Dave. Right. All right, Dave. Who's Dave? We Dave don't Hemming. know. It's Dave Hemming. Dave Hemming. Of course it's Dave, it's Dave Hemming. Hemming. Yeah, yeah, of course it's Dave Hemming. And it's Pete Tompkins, so, the man behind it, right? Yeah, well, we should explain this to the readers probably in case they weren't there at the time. So Dave, listeners, they're probably uh, listening listeners, to this. Sorry. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're reading the transcripts. God, God you've got you. too much time on your hands. So Dave Hemming was a UK downhiller, MVK mainstay. Was he in the team? I can't remember. I'm sure he was at some point. He wrote, yeah. He was, yeah, always, he was always in the mag. He was in the dirt. He wrote for like video. Fat Chance back in yeah. the day, didn't he? And then Marin was probably when he was doing really, really well. Um, but obviously he had the same problem as many racers at that time of losing his chain on rough downhills because rear mechs weren't particularly well tensioned. He had multiple rings up front. Um, so yeah, Pete Tompkins of Crugcatcher, who also filmed the dirt video, I believe. Yeah, he yeah. Was, yeah. Uh, came up with the idea for the Dave's chain device, which was a very simple item it was just a a roller like a plastic roller sandwiched between two bits of metal yeah and clamped onto your chain stay with the chain running over it but it did add the sort of the level of tension that a clutch mech does these days and you did could, you have one well i had an elevated chain stay bike so uh, as much as i really wanted one and <laughs> i wanted to like raise the, to the top the top bit of the chain it would have been pretty unpleasant <laughs> keeps going off i'm working Dave, it's not very good but in those days, when the only downhill racers really had any form of chain guide... Yeah, it made a difference because it, it was broad difference. enough, wasn't it, that you could still shift gears, it could still, you know, it still incorporated that, that wider chain line yeah. without too much hash hassle mm. yeah, until wasn't... the roller clamped tight in mud yeah, and then wore down. I was going to say, until the chain 
wore a groove in the roller and suddenly it was, <laughs> and it didn't it was a lot more drag. It yeah. was great. And then eventually it would be in a position where it would just constantly just pull your chain off. Yeah. <laughs> kind of the opposite of... It's exactly the opposite. Yeah. 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 So it was Pete Tompkins was saying was the man behind it. Yeah. Um, it would be remiss maybe from a UK point of view not to talk about crud. And then maybe one of the brands that has actually... We've not got this in the plan, so I'm throwing a, a curveball in Ooh. there. But one of the brands that... Um, has maybe come from that ilk of, you know, crud guards are the British mug guards that you sort of slapped onto the bottom of your down tube and they stopped, not very much spray. Uh, <laughs> there was a few that you would attach to the your seat post that would probably do a pretty good job. And from then we sort of, you know, it's a very British thing riding in the mud. I guess we've got mud hugger these days, which, yeah. you know, really were some of the first, like, kind of wraparound under the fork crown or under the foot brace sort of mug guards that are now sort of ubiquitous and you see popping up all over the place, all over the World Cup, you know, people are racing these mug guards. Do you not remember um, Chris Porter's Defender? Yes, mm. yeah. It clamped onto the arch, but you had to have a specific, you bought it to fit a fork. Mm. Yeah. You couldn't switch in between. But that was one of the first that hugged the front tire, didn't it? Rather than like the old THE yes. ones that would yeah. plug into the, the, the crown of your fork. Yeah. This was some of the onto first the brace. that sat on the arch of the fork and... Um, I mean, yeah, you, had, wrap the tire, you right? had the marsh guard type things before that, but this was yeah. obviously a lot mm. more, a lot stronger, more coverage. Mm. Yeah. So basically what we're saying is it was a big, big time in terms of kit that changed our lives, being able to see while we rode. <laughs> well, that was the thing, wasn't it? The crud catcher was quite good at stopping spray from the front wheel hitting your jersey, but it didn't do anything to protect your face. And it wasn't until these fork mounted fenders came yeah. on that you could actually ride without glasses. And then, okay, we've got Defender that sort of maybe proved the point. And yeah. then it feels like the likes of Mudhugger and RRP sort of took it and made it a bit more achievable price-wise and a little bit less yeah. tech. You didn't need to bolt yeah. things on. You could just zip tie them on. Yes, that's um, right. And, you know, you see Bruni running a Mudhugger. Yeah. Pretty cool. Seriously cool. Yeah, same. Yeah, and, and the Jamie Action guys were as well, yeah. which was, you know, Sam Hill and, and that lot, which was cool. And actually, it occurs to me while we're talking about UK winter riding you know the mood towards riding pants or trousers has made a massive difference you know in terms of getting back from a ride and just being able to peel off your trousers not, yeah, yeah. not having your leg hairs caked in clumps of mud and your I mean, if we want to go full, you know, <laughs> full on, we've got the onesie. We've got you know the oh, dirt ledge, and we know I love them. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. <laughs> Let's bring it back to actual components. <laughs> we've spoken a lot already on the podcast about. Um, the RS1, so the first suspension fork from RockShox, but we'd be remiss to not cover it off in brief again today. Yeah. Shall I do it? <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> no one else is going to, it seemed. Um, 1989, um, about $800 today, so 350 quid. It was a an air-sprung fork with hydraulic damping. Um, wasn't elastomer based, so performed relatively well i think we can assume to say compared to maybe the other forks on the market Ned over m1 on it didn't he Never in one on yeah, it. paul turner designed it and from there we got rs rock shocks which eventually became part of the whole SRAM thing and is still like arguably the market leader in suspension along with but what's yeah. mad is that we've also got before that horse link suspension yeah which again we touched on the previous mm. or another episode but yeah i mean that four bar horse link suspension has been around since the early 80s and it's still probably the most prevalent mountain bike design today 100 mm. percent. lots of lots of benefits from using it and um mm. that's yeah completely obvious by the fact that almost every single four suspension bike pretty much has it or some you know like or a variation of it yeah or is designed to sort of try and emulate it yeah unless they go down the route of you know 
virtual pivot vpp and the twin link stuff. yeah exactly so many bikes mm. use it which is which is incredible for something designed all those years ago nearly 40 years ago which is incredible as you said though james we have sort of touched on that before uh, we've also mentioned hope c2 brakes as well yeah and but again it's a, genuinely products that did change yeah the I game, mean, right? I mean, the early brakes were all just caliper rim brakes. You know, Shimano, among others, took things up a step with a V-brake in the mid-90s. And it seemed for a moment like that might be a game changer. But actually, within a year or two, you know, disc brakes, hydraulic disc brakes were the thing to have, you know. And you'd struggle if you didn't have them now, right? You'd, oh, if you jumped yeah. on a bike that didn't have disc brakes, even if that's a road bike. Mm. I mean, I, there's still this argument among roadies as to whether hydraulic discs are worth having but I, it makes no sense to me at all like why would you not want to be able to oh i know slow down right especially how fast they go yeah exactly with their super protective lycra on yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's incredible um i suppose a little bit like disc brakes nowadays you wouldn't really want to ride a, mo a modern mountain bike without a dropper post either would you no well this is another interesting one i mean dropper posts didn't really get popular until a uh, 2010? Or, I was going to say a dozen or so years ago, yeah, so about 2010-odd. Because like, there was the gravity There was the gravity dropper. dropper which, yeah. That was around 08? Which I never seven, tried, eight. but apparently worked pretty well. It yeah, just, I, I it tested just, one for the moment. It just looked minging, and people weren't really prepared to mm. stick one on their bike. <laughs> that was the biggest thing I found. So I mm. put it on a bike to test it, and the mo even though it sort of worked, and it, you know, it was a remote, you used yeah. a remote to work it, but there was no routing, so it, made, it was like an extra cable, and then... The actuator kind of stuck out the front mm. of the post, so it, it, there was limitations with it, but it genuinely worked. Yeah. But it was your mates going, what the hell what is that? Yeah. Well, then you had the crank brothers and what have you with the lever under the saddle, so you yeah. had to kind of your Michael Jackson grope one. around yeah. your, your private parts whenever you wanted to put your seat down. And then... Um, and it wasn't really Reaver, until... Where did, I was going to say Reaver the Reaver launched like 2010, 2011? Yeah, Rockshot's Reaver was probably the first really decent dropper. But, I mean, you can trace the origins back to the early 80s and the height rights, if you remember oh, that. Yes. Mm. So what a lot of people don't know is that was invented by Joe Breeze, so the man behind the Breeze, the number one, mm. arguably the first custom mountain bike. And he came up with this idea. I mean, they had a similar problem back then. You know, they were razzing down fire roads on their clunkers and they needed the saddle down low and didn't want to have to move it all the time. Mm. So he had this little sprung-loaded device that sat on top of the seat tube. and It's kind of like a, a, a massive safety pin with a little bracket at either end yeah, of it that basically. just sort of sprung open and sort of squished closed. But yeah, actually, so you opened up your QR, right? Yeah. yeah, squashed it down. Yeah, loaded the spring, lo like locked the QR back up. Yeah, and then when he wanted to lift it up, you undid the QR and it yeah. sprung back up. So I saw a video of it being used recently, and I was surprised at like how effective it looked. Like I imagined because you know, like when you know when you sort of had a QR and you're pulling your seat up and it's like get real grouchy and you're like, you know, try and pull it out, sort of thing. I mean, obviously it was a video, so it was highly produced and probably a, a smaller <laughs> seat post in the seat tube than it should have been, but it went proper like donk. They might have just straight back it, up. Tom, you never know. <laughs> um, you mean done actual maintenance? Oh my lord. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was effective, but yeah. unfortunately the kind of cross-country lead fad for weight saving mm. meant it fell out of favour. Do you know my version of that pre-dropper post was um, you'd have your, your your seat post and your seat tube with your QR and then uh, the problem was always like getting the seat back to the right pedalling height. Mm. So a little bit of gear cable looped around the saddle rail and the, the bolt for your seat post and then you can Ooh. never go too high. I like it. Look at that. Yeah. yeah. Not just a Innovating face. from day one. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Good man. Well done. One thing that I wanted to include on here because I was a keen racer back in the day uh, was Michelin tyres. Mm. And... Um, it was one of those things where, you know, now we've, we're kind of spoilt for choice, really. There's so many good tyres out there. You could go to 
a huge number of brands get a tire that is going to work and be fairly competitive. But back in the mid nineties, late nineties, basically, if you didn't have Michelin tires on your bike, you're going to struggle. It was that, it was that significant. So Michelin had some, uh, very specific tires. I think it was the comp 16, 24, 32. There's a 28 as well. I think, um, different tread patterns. The 16s were probably the one that we would use in the UK more than anything else. They were just the grippiest tires you could get. Mm-hmm. Everything else was fairly durable, hard wearing, but you'd slap a set of 16s on and okay, they wore out super fast, but my God, all of a yeah. sudden it was like you could mm-hmm. actually ride. There was so much traction. So we all had sets of uh, comp 16s and, and I used to only ever put them on for racing. Right. The rest of the time I'd put some wild grippers on maybe, Michelin wild grippers, mm-hmm. those. stick those on for the week and then put the race tires on for the mm. weekend I and mean, i guess it's worth saying at that time for downhill especially i mean what else was there you had to kind of cure your factory dhs i guess oh yeah which and gazalodis yeah gazalodis yeah massive great 2.8 inch jobs i mean there wasn't a lot of competition was there so when the michelins came out it really was a game changer yeah and then uh, you know um after that it was the maxis high roller which kind of emulated you know sort of a very similar tread pattern to the 16 but also what was cool with um michelin um, we were lucky enough to ride for a team that was supported by them. So we had, we eventually ended up with loads of tires and Dave, who was our mechanic was able, he had a tire cutter. So if we said, oh, we didn't like something about them, he used to make little cuts to really? try and improve them. Yeah. So we used to run like, uh, the comp 24s with cuts in the shoulder treads or yeah, I think it was the shoulder treads just to try and, you know, improve um, so clearance and stuff like that. Yeah, just just to either improve. It was you're trying to you know either improve like traction or clearance if the conditions were a bit different. Mm. You know, sometimes you stick one of those on because they were slightly faster rolling. Mm. The 16s were pretty slow, right? So you change them up or uh, the 28s. The 28s were massive. They're like a 2.8. Huh. So you'd only ever run those at Fort William. Big fat tire just to help keep you out of the holes. Yeah, just like you know jumping up a wheel size was that magic feeling of, oh, I can just sort of float over mm, these mm, mm. annoying little rocky steps. It was kind of similar. Mm-hmm. So very cool brand and, and obviously pushed the other tire manufacturers to kind of, you know, mm. where they are now. Yeah. Almost. You could probably trace a lot of them back, as I said, especially Maxis. Yes. Um, I mean, while we're talking about grip, it's probably worth touching on 510. Oh, that's a good shout. Yeah, great yeah. shout. So remind me what the story is. So the initial, the first time I saw 510 soles in a shoe were on the Intense shoes i think i think it's a re- isn't it a really sort of like controversial story oh, is isn't it? it oh dear sorry Shouldn't well no it's get our lawyers involved <laughs> yeah. well, bring them down. i'd heard that jeff steber had wanted to improve flat pedal shoes which is why they're you know the originals were intense branded with a 510 sole yeah so 510 were a climbing brand yeah. who already had these super sticky soles and yeah i think you're right i think jeff steber from intense because it was only ever originally those guys wearing It was just them, right? for a team to wear, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I remember seeing Kavarit wearing them. Then eventually Rennie got some, Nathan Rennie, who went on to the syndicate. I mean, before this, if you rode flat pedals, you wore vans or skate shoes of some kind, didn't you, basically? There wasn't really anything specific for mountain biking out there. Yeah. Right? So there was some grip, but the problem you had is that they were really soft and they'd sort of, you'd, you know, you'd be clawing at the pedal and mm. slipping around and, when everyone else had basically clipped in, anyone who was you know, like a dedicated flat pedal rider at the time was really struggling. And then when um, Jeff launched, well, brought these shoes out for his riders, all of a sudden 
a massive difference was made. They could actually keep their feet on riding a track like Fort William, which is notoriously bumpy and rough and horrible. And I mean, yeah, you know, Kovarik won wearing them in 2002 by 14 seconds. And then since then, you got the likes of Hill, who's a lifer when it comes to 510s. He's won, I don't know how many downhill races in those probably, he's on what, five, five world championships? Well, and still uses them for enduro racing as well. Bizarrely, the same, his signature model ones as well. The fact that they've changed so much over the years, he still has the ones that if they get wet, they weigh as much as a car. <laughs> and he still insists on wearing them. But, I mean, who can, probably got who can criticize that, yeah. right? But, yeah, that was a good shout. Yeah. And also, grip. Sorry, going back towards wheels keep going, and tyres. Keep going. UST. Hey, yeah, tires. great segue. Still something not everyone's adopted, which mystifies me to a, a certain extent. Mystifies me. <laughs> <laughs> I had a reasons. big old run about this in another podcast. Oh dear, sorry. Why we're we using sellotape on our rims, I just do not know. <laughs> Tom did get very vocal. But yeah, angry. I mean, the days of running super hard pressures because it was supposedly faster are gone. I think most people now accept that, that to get grip, you need to have tyres that can form over the ground. Yeah. And having a tubeless setup that allows you to run lower pressures makes that easier to achieve while also reducing the risk of punctures. But I guess like Shimano, like we were talking about earlier, it's very much, they, they were there from, you know, it was their thing. They set that standard. Yeah. So, I mean, Michelin are the kind of famous ones behind UST, which I think is Universal System System Tubeless. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't, I think it was Hutchinson and Mavic. Oh, sorry. Mavic were the ones. Mavic were the main yes. ones. Getting muddled up now. Not Michelin. Michelin yeah. tires. But yeah, I think it was Mavic. Michelin I mean, did have tubeless tires. Yeah. yeah. Very early on. Yeah. Yeah. But there I were think three was... brands basically involved from the start. Yeah. But it was Mavic a... were the ones. Sorry, Tom. Oh, no, no. Yeah. I mean, it was Mavic who sort of came up with what the standard is because it's a very set standard for you know the the internal diameter of the wheels and obviously the the difference between UST and sort of the rest of the systems is that the rim bed is sealed. Well yeah so UST was I think designed to not even be used with sealant it was supposed to be completely airtight. Yeah. Although obviously if you wanted the puncture resistance the Yeah you'd still put healing, the sealant in there to sealant in, yeah. But in theory it's, it's yeah even it's a sealed tighter tolerances than any other And that was all up. the way back in 1999 is that well, right? Well we can believe that could we when we looked no, at I know. Earlier, mm. we saw that it was mid 2000s or something. No you mean when we look back in our memories. Oh yeah when we <laughs> not uh, when we looked it up we wouldn't have been when we uh, <laughs> we knew all this all yeah, along. Yeah, oh, yeah. It was just at the back of my mind somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> we can't really talk about stuff like tubeless without mentioning someone like Schwalbe, Procore, you know. Do, yeah, well, this do, is the other... I suppose commercially available inserts? I mean, this is an interesting one because I think tubeless, apart from the faff of sometimes getting it set up, it's got pretty obvious universal benefits. Yeah. Mm. I think inserts are more debatable. I think it depends on your riding style and how what pressures you run and everything else. Procore at the time, which was like a pressurized tube inside almost like a tube right mm. inside yeah. your tire had some maybe quirky characteristics because of the pressure within that but what it's done is led on to a number of variations around that yeah i mean we probably also need to mention the fact that michelin had something like this in the late 90s mm. which i think was called le system for the downhill Sounds races very michelin-esque yep um but this the, the Procore system was very much like uh you could go out and buy i think it was like 200 quid it was expensive but i mean well, even it, though like i mean inserts are expensive now still yeah wasn't it like a big secret though so i remember doing a the bike Mitchell check one? on yeah i or remember the pro, uh, the pro core i remember doing a bike yeah. check on uh mark beaumont's bike at fort william gosh 15 years ago or something yeah he had like the two valves on his wheel and he couldn't say anything about it mm. when, when steve bear and i asked him but it did become commercially available a few it became years commercially after that. available yeah i think the thing 
the difference with Procore compared to what we see now from inserts is obviously it's construction. Like it wasn't a foam base. It was, as I said, like it was basically a non-expandable inner tube that mm, yeah. sort of had the same dimensions as an uninflated smallish tube. So what it did was it prevented too much damage when you bottomed out, but it didn't offer any tire support. And you and ran it. It wasn't damped, was it? And it wasn't damped. Yeah. And you ran it to high pressures. It was really, you put. It's quite pingy. It was pingy when you bumped off it, but also you kept hearing sort of rumours, maybe un unscientifically measured, but that it was almost like impact on spoke tension because yeah. everything was being compressed so mm. much. And of course, you then had like a, basically a two-stage valve when it was commercially available, two-stage valve, which you pumped up the, it was, a, it was a faff to fit. I tried, I fitted it and it was a faff. <laughs> uh, you had to but like, love that. Like, oh God, I love that. <laughs> but you know, you, you then had the, yeah, a two-stage valve that you, you pumped up the pro core and then you pumped up the rest of the tyre. Mm the tire chamber. Um, so it kind of, it, it existed and kind of worked. It kind of did what it said on the tin in many respects, but it wasn't very long after that all the other foam-based systems yeah. arrived and kind of did the job better for a little bit less money and well, a lot that, less. And actually the foam-based systems potentially can add a bit of damping as exactly, well. Exactly, yeah. Which the tube in tube couldn't really. Yeah. Yep. Okay, there's a couple more things I want to talk about. The first one, relatively broad we should probably not go into too much depth but i think we'd be remiss to not include electric motors not of any particular brand maybe because yep. obviously in our extensive research before we started recording <laughs> no one could actually decide which brand we should include the inclusion of a motor and a battery has obviously had a massive impact on mountain biking it's changed i suppose the business it's Mm. For some people, it's completely changed how they ride a bike. Yeah, I mean, I think it's changed how existing riders ride a bike in some cases, but it's also allowed people to get back into the sport who are out of it due to illness or injury. It's yeah. opened it up to a whole new, whole new groups of people. It's reinvigorated the industry. Like yeah. Yeah, there are brands 100%. that exist now that maybe wouldn't exist if it weren't for the e-bike. Yeah, you look at brands like High Bike who were in it from the get-go, mm. mm. who are you know have been. They were probably up against it, I would say, mm. in the early days. But yeah. since every other brand has now gone, actually, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, high bike are obviously the kind of the pioneers, I guess, of of mountain bike e bikes. And I think Specialized played a big role as well with the original yeah. Levo, Levo. Really helped to popularize e bikes. I remember, you know, the videos of the Coastal Crew back then. Yeah, when everyone was. Yeah, totally. When a lot of people were on the fence about e bikes, or or not even on the fence, but actively <laughs> against them. It was cool seeing, you know, these riders in Canada jumping yeah. on them, riding downhill on them, showing what they could do. Mm. Exactly. And I think, yeah, well, I think whatever you think about e-bikes, they've undeniably done some good things for the sport in terms of widening access. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. And um, I think they're only going to get better and hopefully, well, even potentially bring in even more people to the sport. Yeah, and, they, and, well, and they've also opened the door for, for innovation in terms of, well, as we've seen with, Shramma Shimano in terms of automatic shifting and shifting while mm. coasting and all those kinds of stuff. Which again, I think if you're if you're riding a mountain bike for the first time, it's not so bad with a one by system, but in the old days with, with three by systems, trying to get your head around changing gear and everything else took a while. Mm. Whereas now you can jump on the bike with auto shift, you know, it changes motor modes for you if you're in the right mode, it changes gears for you and you can just enjoy the ride. Madness. Madness. Absolute madness. Yeah. Okay, finally, before we wrap up, there's one last bit of gear that, or especially for people that live in the UK of a certain age, will have made a hell of a difference. And it's not something you bolt to your bike, but in fact, it's a magazine. 
You must know what I'm talking about, right? I think we're talking about MBUK. Hey. 1988. There you go. I was a year old. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, showing my young age there. Yes. It is like it is really important, you know, like yeah. as I say, from people of maybe sort of our-ish generation, like pre-internet, really, pre, you know, like being able to sort of instantly get a load of hits of you know, videos and racing and all that sort of stuff. Like, MBUK was, and other magazines that are around, but really MBUK, and I'd say Dirt in the UK. Mm. But where you went, if you wanted to learn about the culture, the racing, the tech of yeah. mountain biking? I mean, Dirt had a massive massive influence on the more kind of downhill end of the scene from the mid-90s onwards, I yeah. guess. But yeah, from 88, MBUK was was the place to go for... Yeah, before videos, really, like mountain bike videos were mm. released. Yeah. And it launched the career of so many British riders, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of kudos has to go to the founding editor, Tim Manley. The Absolutely. Viking, yeah. Who, as well as being an absolute legend and bon vivant, bon vivant I've been told it has to be, by <laughs> Julia, our French uh, <laughs> designer. She doesn't like bon vivant. It's an ang anglicization. Oh, but anyway, uh, Tim had a very clear vision for the mag, which was it shouldn't be too focused on racing and fitness. It should be about the lifestyle and the fun you can have on the bike. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've tried to stick to ever since. I and he was yeah. a hell of, I mean, Tim, I worked with Tim for a, a yeah, brief spell. Yeah. He was a hell of a character. Yeah. Crazy ideas, absolutely well, off the wall. Exactly. And, and mountain biking was still finding its feet in those days. People didn't quite know what the sport was, whether it was just, you know, road cycling on mud or whether it had its own personality. And I think Tim really helped to show kind of wilder side of, mm. of things. Is it worth discussing some of the riders who have sort of come through the ranks with MBUK? Like, I mean, not sort of like yeah, big yeah. up, but you know, like some genuinely like massive riders as as will. Well, yeah, it's, it's easy for us to kind of sing our own praises, but you know, the fact that we over the years have had on our team the likes of you know Jason McCroy, Steve Pete, Rob Warner, Danny Mark, Hart, Mark Beaumont, Mark Beaumont, you know, no, Donahue. So, yeah, I mean, Mark Beaumont won a World Cup on our while well, riding for our team. You know, mm. I think. In terms of kind of building the British scene in the in the nineties, but then it's also helped the Martins, Martin yeah, Ashton, yeah. Martin Halls, um, and then we had you know um, Steve Warland kind of set the tone for bike testing in the UK. Arguably, well, maybe well, yeah. in the world, yeah. his his standard, his ability to avoid taking any shit, you know, he could just accept it from all the brands and take it on the chin, and he really set the tone for how we operate now. So yeah, massive. Um, Massive pat on the back to all of those guys. Um, yeah, I mean, especially Tim. Yeah. Absolute visionary at that point. Well, and I think we had to recognise Steve Baird's contribution as well. Obviously, a legendary photographer who's been there pretty much since day one and is still... Well, him and Tim are like partners in crime, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. Still coming out on shoots with us today. And yeah, it's always a pleasure to work with Steve. There you go. Well, that wraps things up nicely. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, James. And please join us again for another episode of the MBK podcast very soon. Thank you.